In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, Jacob, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come home from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Job and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerobesheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asked you this, then say to him, moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out. And when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, the men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. 
When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Well, thank you very much. It'll be helpful for you to click on that. If you've got a smartphone, you'll be able to see a talk outline and the Bible passage. We're really in 2 Samuel 11 and 12 and Psalm 51, so heads up on that. Let's pray. Our loving and gracious Father, everything in the scriptures is written for our encouragement and edification, for our correction, for our training in righteousness, including acts of evil which your people have done in the past, but from which we can learn. Our gracious Father, as we come to Psalm 51, that wonderful Psalm of David, which deals with guilt. Please help us to know how to deal with our guilt. May it not be left undealt with. Speak to us in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wonder after hearing that reading, uh, what's your reaction? Maybe you're saying, how, how could he? How could he? The Lord's anointed, the king after God's own heart, the forerunner of Jesus, chosen by God, lifted out of obscurity, made to be the champion of Israel, victorious. After years on the run, years in waiting, finally he is made king, he's installed in Jerusalem. How could he? After all that God had done for him, including this unprecedented moment when the Lord made a unique promise to David that from him, his family, would come the eternal Christ, the ruler of God's eternal kingdom. He hasn't made this promise to anyone but to David. How could he? How could he abuse the grace of God, take a woman who's not his wife and see her husband murdered? How could he? So there's one reaction, shock and disgust. Now, if you're feeling that, that's right. You should. But there's another reaction which is also right to have. And that's not so much how could he, but I understand how he could. I get it. I'm ashamed to say so, but haven't I done the same thing in my heart and in my mind? Put me in David's shoes. And the shoes fit very well. The story of David's fall draws both reactions, doesn't it? It draws our shock, our outrage, our indignation, our judgment, as well as our sympathy. And that makes this story very disturbing, but at the same time, very personally helpful. Because the psalm that comes out of this story, Psalm 51, shows us how to deal with guilt. And guilt is there with everyone. Uh, I studied psychology for four years, David studying psychology, um, Natalie's a psychologist down the back. I worked in the psych faculty at the University of New South Wales for two years, and psych has its place, it's helpful, but um, with respect to the other psych people in the room, for me at that point, when I put everything together, I, I thought it's limited in how, to, how it deals with guilt. Because what I was basically 
what I basically gleaned was when you put together everything, you put together the environmental, the nat you know, the genetic um, causes and factors which influence human behaviour, you can explain human behaviour, which means, of course, that people aren't responsible for what they do, which means that psych was not very good at helping people deal personally with their guilt, because people know they're responsible. They know they're guilty. The Bible, I thought, actually was much more insightful. Um, we know sin renders us guilty before God and before other people. The Bible tells us how to deal with it. And there's no better model than the prayer that David prays in Psalm 51. But first, let's recap the background story which we've heard. Israel, once again, is at war. David is Israel's leader. But instead of David doing the normal thing and leading the campaign as the king, oddly, he stays behind in Jerusalem and he sends Joab, his general, out in his place. Now, he's the king, he's entitled to do it, but it does raise eyebrows. Is David shirking his responsibilities? But we think, well, maybe, you know, who doesn't need a bit of R&R at some point in time? Then one evening, as you heard, David gets up, he walks around on the roof of his palace, flat roof, from the roof, he spies a woman bathing. And so, of course, he does the right thing. He averts his eyes. He flees temptation. He goes inside. No, he doesn't, does he? He gives himself over to it. He plays the voyeur. And as he stares, he sees that this woman is very beautiful. And he sends for her. And she comes to him. And he takes her. The Hebrew is surprisingly brief, like the act itself. Three words, he sends, she came, he lay. In the way it's described, it's not romantic, it's not personal, it's gratuitous free sex. Or so he thought, because in God's world, free sex is never free. Lo and behold, at the end of the month, she sends word back to David that she is with child. Now, what David did is going to come out unless, unless. And what follows, therefore, which we heard, was a king's pitiful attempt to sow fig leaves to hide his nakedness, to cover his tracks. Plan A, he sends for her husband, Uriah, and he goes through the motions. How's the war going? Tell me about it. But his intention is just to send Uriah home to sleep with his wife so he can pass off the child as Uriah's. But Uriah is a man of respect. He's more respect than David does. Out of respect for God, out of respect for his fellow soldiers, his commanders on the front line, Uriah will not go to even see his wife, let alone sleep with her. He sleeps that night where the palace servants sleep. So, plan B. The next night, David plies Uriah with alcohol, booze. Maybe if Uriah's not thinking straight, he'll... Leave, he'll um, lose his previous control, lose his inhibitions. But no, even a drunk Uriah is more principled than a sober David. Time for plan, ex extreme plan, plan C. Take Uriah's life so he can take Uriah's wife. Well, David sends Uriah back to the front line with a letter to the general. Place Uriah where the fighting is fiercest, and then withdraw from him so that he's murdered by the enemy. Joab receives the letter. Joab complies. 
Uriah is killed. And Joab sends a very carefully penned report back to David reporting the losses and then with the key intel thrown in as a final afterthought, moreover, Uriah the Hittite is dead. Now for David, receiving this letter, I mean, a righteous king, what he'd be struck, wouldn't he? But David, oh, phew, it's over. David sends words to Joab and listen carefully to what he says. He says, don't let this upset you, literally, Don't let this matter be evil in your eyes. Don't look on this as evil. Don't see it as evil. Now, if Joab didn't see it as evil, if Joab kept quiet, if he didn't make trouble, David calculates his sin is covered. He'll take Bathsheba as his own wife. He'll be off the hook. And of course, he would be if it was only Joab's perspective that mattered. But David has forgotten, he's pushed it out of his mind, that there is another one who sees. The last verse of the chapter that was read tells us, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Literally, the thing David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. There is another one who sees, he is the Lord. And how how he sees David's reactions matters more than how Joab or anyone else sees them. This is confronting. We can construct elaborate plans to cover over what we have done. We can delete our browser history. We can falsify the timesheet, whatever it is. We are playing sowing fig leaves together. We can tell ourselves and those who know that what's been done shouldn't be seen as evil. We can persuade ourselves that it's not evil. We can think that with the passage of time, our tracks sufficiently covered, our guilt is erased and gone. But we forget that the Lord also sees. That his perspective is far weightier than ours. That he sees what we do in public, he sees what we do in private, in secret. He sees indeed into our minds, he sees into our hearts. He sees our sins and regards them as evil. And the Lord, he cares too much just to let evil go unpunished. And so the Lord sends the prophet Nathan to David. This is in chapter 12, the next chapter. You should go home and read it. Let me summarize. Nathan, how do you tell a king that he has grossly sinned? He tells a story. It's a stroke of genius. He tells a story to David of a rich man and a poor man. The rich man has many, many sheep. The poor man, he only has one treasured sheep, a sheep that he has raised with his children and treated like a daughter. But the rich man comes in and takes that poor man's sheep, butchers it so as to feed a guest. Now David sees the rich man's evil for what it is. David's judging the rich man. He erupts, he burns with anger. As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. And then Nathan the prophet looks him squarely in the eyes and says, you are the man. You're the man. And suddenly the king is unmasked. Suddenly the king sees that he's judged himself. He sees his sin. He sees what his sin would look like to an outsider looking in on the situation. It's the whole purpose of the story, a genius stroke. 
the story was there to put David in the position of the judge and for David to judge the sin as the evil that it was and for then David then therefore to see his sin as evil. But of course, what had happened was that his sin had blinded him. That's what sin does. Sin blinds uh, us from seeing what is clear to other people and what is clear to the Lord. Sin blinds us. What happens is we get tunnel vision. We focus on just gratifying our own desires. We become oblivious to how gratifying our desires just dehumanizes all the people that we do damage to in our wake. Um, How sin makes people objects to use who we can just discard and throw away. That's how David saw Bathsheba. Not as someone's wife, not as someone's daughter, but how is she spoken of? The woman, the woman. David dehumanizes her, makes her into an object, a body, that's it. That is what's so evil about reducing people to their bodies. It blinds us to seeing them as people. Someone's wife, someone's daughter, someone's granddaughter, someone loved by the Lord. But the woman David saw was a person. She had a name, she had a father, she had a husband. In fact, the name, her name, Bathsheba, means daughter of an oath. Her very name proclaims that she is a person tied to her father as his daughter and to her husband by an oath. David blinded himself to all of that. The sin blinded David, not just to how he saw Bathsheba, but how he saw Uriah. Uriah was a great guy. Uriah was one of David's 30 mighty men, right? This is his inner circle of uh, security, his security detachment. He was a foreigner who was loyal to David. He was a foreigner, even though a foreigner, loyal to David's soldiers, loyal to David's God, a great man. All David saw was that he was someone who was in the way, a problem who needed to be got rid of. Well, how do you see David's sin now? Are you even more shocked and outraged? From God's perspective, you should be. But are you also sitting there feeling yourself exposed and guilty? From God's perspective, we should be. You are the man. I'm no murderer, I'm no adulterer, maybe not. But what did Jesus say? If anyone looks with the intent of lusting, they've already committed adultery. If anyone's been angry in their heart with their brother, they've already committed murder. Through Nathan, God exposed David, you're the man. Through Jesus, the son of David, God exposes us, you're the man. You're the woman. Nathan, the prophet, helps David to see further that sin is personal. There is a personal connection between the sinner and the judge. Any sin against a person is a sin against the Lord. How is that? David says, Nathan says to David, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. David, I showered grace upon you. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you. I gave your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all that had been too little, I would have given you even more. Grace, grace, 
grace, what has God given you in your life? Can you list all the graces God has given? Actually, you can't. I mean, it would be a good exercise to try. It'd be a wonderful exercise to try. But there are graces we, we don't know nothing of that we're blind to. Grace, grace, grace. I have showered you with this. And so in sinning against Bathsheba, in sinning against Uriah, you have sinned against me. You despise my word by doing what is evil in my eyes. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You took his wife to be your own. And so now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house. Why? Because the Lord says, you despised me in taking the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Not just you despised Uriah, you despised me, says the Lord. Sin, you see, is not just breaking a law. It's not the impersonal violation of a, a standard. All sin is personal to God. It is sin against him who has showered us with so many good things in our lives. A sin against our mother or father is a sin against the Lord who brought us into being through them. A sin against our children or grandchildren is a sin against the Lord who has, in his kindness, put them in your life, who has entrusted them to your care. A sin against a boss or a work colleague is a sin against the Lord who gave us the capabilities to work and all that comes from it and put us in that context to work. A sin against a wife or husband is a sin against God who bonded us to them as our wife or husband in the first place. Sin is never clinical, it's never impersonal, it is always relational, it is always personal, it is always against God. Struck to the heart, David sees it. Verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. And then, who knows when it was, in the hours, maybe in the days that followed, David penned Psalm 51. It's an expose of uh, the mind of someone coming clean with the Lord regarding his guilt. And if you go then to Psalm 51, if you're looking that up, uh, it's very, very helpful. It begins with the first need that we have, the cry for mercy. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Having declared with his own lips that a man such as he deserves to die, David begins by crying out for God not to treat him as his sins deserve. What he needs is mercy. Um, now, I want to say, look, it's, it's possible to understand, uh, theoretically, the idea of grace. It's possible to understand that Jesus died on the cross for you, but until you personally, until I reach that point of deep conviction inside of us that we have sinned against the Lord and that what we need more than anything else is mercy, we will never understand grace unless you come to that point. Uh, this has all the hallmarks, David's words have all the hallmarks of a tax collector in Luke 18 who in that parable wouldn't even lift up to his, his eyes to heaven but beats his breast and says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. David gets it. Yes, he sinned against Bathsheba. Yes, he sinned against Uriah. As king, he sinned against all of God's people but now he gets it. In view of all that God's done for him, in view of the fact that every person that we sin against is someone who God cherishes personally, 
Now he's overwhelmed, he's crushed with the weight of his guilt against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He calls himself a transgressor. That means he has crossed a line, the line of God's law, the standard. He has deliberately stepped over it. He has transgressed. He has knowingly put his foot across the line and he knows that God knows it. And he knows that there's a heavenly record against him. He is objectively guilty of transgressing God's laws. So then having prayed first for mercy, don't treat me as my sins deserve. Now he prays for that record against him to be expunged because that's what he needs. He says, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Blot it out on my record. David's actions have stained him. He's been outed. There's no pretending to be clean. I know my transgressions, he says. My sin is always before me. He can't pretend anymore. He can't play distraction and just push it into his, you know, the back of his mind. It's there in front of him. His objective need, his felt need, is now to be washed clean of the stain of his guilt. And he knows only God can do it. He says, wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from all my sin. So we learn, don't we, David cries out to God first of all for mercy and then for his guilt to be erased. Relationally, the step of asking for it, of crying out is necessary. We can hear talk of Jesus' death for us if we've never been convicted of our own guilt. If you've never personally prayed and asked God, please take it away, that record still remains. Jesus died to win you that your record would be clean, but unless you've asked for it, it still remains. Relationally, it's a step we need to take to plea to God to remove our guilt. David does. But then the next step, having asked God to deal with the problem of his objective guilt, he now reflects, what's caused this? And now he goes to a deeper problem, and that is his depravity. It's been said that the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. David realizes now he's got a problem right at the inner core of his being. Because what sort of man would behave like this except someone who had already been, or who already was deeply, deeply fallen? What's wrong with him that he sins knowingly and willingly against his creator? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with me that we do this? Where does this depravity come from? I mean, was he ever completely pure? No, the truth is, he looks back through his life, he can see it, he knows he's always been fallen. Surely I was sinful at birth. He can go right back through his making memory to when he can't remember. In fact, he, he goes back even before that moment. Surely I was sinful from the time my mother conceived me. There's something deeply fallen about us. We are like that shopping trolley that veers offline, it never goes straight. It's a problem too deep simply to gloss over or think that it will right itself in time or think we can self-correct by trying harder. To have this ingrained, hardwired, deep-seated rebellion against our creator, that is perversion, isn't it? So that even if God blots out our transgressions, 
David realizes what he deeply needs and what we need is to be remade. We need to be reformed. We need to be transformed from within. And that's what God desires. He says, you desired faithfulness even in the womb. And so he prays that famous line, create in me a clean heart. Create in me a pure heart, O God, so that I won't sin against you and renew a steadfast spirit within me so that I'll stay online, I won't veer off. Change me from within, he's praying. Now, ultimately, this is a prayer for God to change us by his Holy Spirit, for God to make us new within, for God to sanctify us through and through. This psalm is really helpful because what do you do when God confronts you with your own guilt, with your own depravity? Well, first of all, you cry out to him for mercy. God, please don't treat me as my sins deserve. And then you cry out for God to remove your guilt, the stain of your guilt. He says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your fates from my sins. Blot out my iniquity. Get rid of my guilt. Now, as to how that happens, uh, David has provided the clue when he said, cleanse me with hyssop. Hyssop, why does he say that? Hyssop was the plant used by the Israelites on the night of the Passover to daub their, the door frames with the blood of the Passover lamb sacrifice so that when the angel of death passed across Egypt, it would pass over those identified with the blood of the slain Passover lamb and that the Lord then would not bring upon those households the judgment that fell elsewhere. Hyssop also was the plant, the stick, used to lift up the sponge to Jesus' lips on the cross right at the moment when he, the Passover lamb, was shedding his blood for us to save us from judgment. Cleanse me with hyssop, save me. Cleanse me through the cross. That's how God blots out our offenses. That's how God washes us. That's how he, he cleanses us of our guilt. And then David takes us to the next step, to cry out against his depravity, to be changed within, creating me a clean heart, O oh God. That is, I want to be able to love you I want to be able to love what you love. I want to be able to hate what you hate. I want to be able to delight to walk in the ways of you instead of doing it begrudgingly or just because I have to. I want to be like you. That is the radical change which God brings about us when we repent. This is a work of God's spirit. It begins when we first turn to the Lord it's ongoing, it won't be completed until the day of resurrection, but fundamentally, it's that Godward reorientation that comes when you say, I am coming clean, I am stopping walking away from you, Lord, I am turning to you, and I want to now walk towards you. I want to uh, be yours. That's when God's spirit changes you, so you want to live for God instead of yourself. Um, such are the people who will, with David will, will pray, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Now, the steps. Mercy, do not treat me as my sins deserve. 
guilt blot out my transgressions, depravity, create in me a clean heart. And there's one more, shame, deal with my shame, because there's all these problems, isn't there? I need mercy, I need guilt to be dealt with, I need my depravity to be dealt with, but I need my shame, because shame comes, follows guilt. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Um, now, I want to say this. There are people here who, are, who have come to Christ and their guilt is gone, but they are crippled by shame. That is, um, paralyzed. It weighs upon you, uh, the shame of things you've done in the past. It weighs upon you and saps your joy. You know you're saved, but there's no, there's not, no joy about it. Um, and it stops you doing good for the Lord. How could I, me, with all my shame? This psalm is extremely helpful. Here is David, he's adulterer, he's murderer, and yet after he's prayed for his guilt to be removed and to be remade within, what he next praised against is being paralyzed by shame. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Give me back that joy. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me, the consistency of joy to be able to know I'm saved, to be able to delight in it, to be able to stand in it, to be able to move forward in it. He's looking forward to experiencing the joy of salvation instead of limping along under the weight of shame. And then he says, what will happen then is that I will be useful for you. Then, verse 13, I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. He's, he knows he's done wrong. But can you see, he's even thinking now, because of what I've done, because of what God's brought me through, I could actually be useful to God and he could use this. I could help teach sinners to turn back to you. He's thinking about future service, future ministry possibilities. He's praying that God would restore the joy of his salvation so that even what he did was evil, his shame wouldn't be this anchor stopping him from serving the Lord and helping people turn back to him. So David in the psalm has helpfully taken us through a number of steps that come when you see your sin. Now, these steps aren't a formula. I don't want you to go out thinking, oh, now I've got to do one, two, three, four, five, you know, like in the psalm. This is not a law, this is relational. But the psalm is worth reflecting on because they help us see, yes, all our needs and how we need to come clean with God. Mercy, have mercy on me, O God. Conviction, against you, you only have I sinned. Guilt, blot out my transgressions. Depravity, create in me a clean heart, O God. Shame, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Now, if you read 2 Samuel 12, in the story of what followed, David's life was spared by God. David didn't die for his sin. He did once again rise up to go into the temple to worship. But if you know the story and if you have faith to see, the reason why, Jesus, uh, why David was able to go to worship was because an innocent son of David died instead of him. In David's case, it was Bathsheba's child, his child, his unnamed son born to Bathsheba. He didn't survive. 
God took his life, the life of a newborn child, and saved David's. Sin has consequences. Now, that's unfair. With the eye of faith to see, it's helpful for us. In our case, who was it that died instead of us? The son of David, wasn't it? Jesus, the innocent one, like this child, who came amongst us at such great cost to himself and lovingly gave his sinless life in exchange for ours. Jesus on the cross, he meets our every need, he deals with it all, you could list through them. But the only way we can grasp him is first of all, to see our need. Psalm 51 verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise, says David. What we're now going to do is to listen to Psalm 51. This is the confession time of the service. It's going to be sung, this, just for your knowledge, this is gonna take some time because we're gonna slow down and actually go through the psalm word by word. But listening to it in a song, slowing us down is helpful because it helps us to deeply meditate and then to use these words yourself um, as a way of confessing and coming clean to God. Uh, it's gonna take about eight minutes, but we thought it was really important to do. And then Ellis, I think, is gonna come up and lead us in prayer after.